Hello. Bonjour. Bonjour. Ciao. Hello. Welcome to Fertility Insights, the Cooper Surgical Podcast. Welcome to this uh, Fertility Insights, the Cooper Surgical Podcast. So, we're delighted today that you joined us to learn more about fertility and the latest research from highly respected and experienced experts within the industry. My name is Tony Gordon. I'm the Vice President of Business Development here at Life Sciences for Cooper Surgical Fertility Solutions. In this episode, I'm joined by my colleague and a pioneer of reproductive genetics, Mark Hughes. I'm also delighted to welcome Manuel Viotti, PhD from Zubit Fertility. And the subject today is um, a IVF genetics subject of mosaicism. Thinking about mosaicism, you know, one of the things that clearly is an issue that we're beginning to get around, and I think the field is moving to a much more widespread acceptance of considering transferring mosaics. I think, you know, a few years ago when people first started um, reporting mosaics, there was such nervousness about the outcome of this that very few mosaics were transferred. And you can see that in the STAR trial where anything that was uh, reported as mosaicism was uh, then not transferred. So, you know, there's, there's real sort of issues there. And it must be very hard for genetic counsellors to give information and for clinicians and for embryologists to really give good information to patients. And, you know, Manuel has done great work in the paper where they've transferred the first no, thousand known mosaic embryos. So this is where it's an intentional transfer in uh, a ranking system of a, a mosaic embryo. But when you look at where we are with, say, CVS, where you can go and you can go to papers that have tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of CVS results, and you can see the impact in detail of different mosaicisms, UPT-10, uh, 7, UPT-2, UPT-14, 15, UPT, um, mosaic, um, mosaic 2, mosaic 7, mosaic 14, mosaic 15, things like that. You know, where do we need to get to with our clinical information? Are we going to need to go from the first 1,000 to the first 10,000, the first 100,000? And should we be um, collecting and collating that data to build up our knowledge so that, you know, we can empower clinicians and embryologists uh, to inform patients and GCs to inform patients better? Yeah, it's it's obviously a... It's a developing field. Um, you know, the first paper um, describing the transfer of an embryo that was diagnosed as mosaic came in 2015 from a group in Italy with Hermano Greco. Um, <clears throat> so it's six years old, and we're we're still <laughs> trying to get a handle of it and figuring it out from many perspectives, technologically. Um, ethically, clinically, how to manage those embryos. So with this paper that came out earlier this year with a thousand, with an, basically the analysis of the clinical outcome of a thousand embryos that were classified as mosaic, we got some insights. And the insights are basically 
confirming in a way what smaller observational studies had done before from different clinics, uh, showing that as a bulk, the embryos that are classified as mosaic have lower implantation rates and, and, and lower ongoing pregnancy rates than those classified as euploid. Uh, and that's great. And secondly, that, like I said, features of mosaicism that are detected with PGTA can be informative and correlate with individual, with distinct clinical outcomes. Those are two broad uh, findings, but there's obviously so, so much more that is that is missing. And, and, you know, as we accumulate more data, and like you said, we it's, necess- it's absolutely crucial that we get to collecting data for 5,000, 10,000 and, and beyond um, that will either refine the findings that we've seen so far. They, they might change them. They might refute some of the findings that we've seen so far. I mean, we can only go by what data, existing data there is to, to have guidelines for mosaic embryo transfers. Um, but especially the questions that, you've, that you're getting at, things like, individual chromosome mosaicism to some at PGTA are some, um, you know, preferable over others to some have different clinical outcomes compared to others that we, we simply cannot do with the data that exists, that exists right now. We need much higher, much bigger numbers. Other questions like does the size of the segment of the subchromosomal segment that is mosaic, mosaic, does that influence clinical outcomes does a larger segmental uh, aneuploidy have different clinical outcomes than a lot than a smaller segmental um, you know on and on there's there's so much more that we need to uh, build on that we need to find out um, again we can only go by by the existing data the existing data so far says mosaics perform worse than euploids but still perform much better than than, than uniform aneuploids which have zero, basically zero, um, you know, viability or, or uh, chances of a healthy pregnancy. Um, features of mosaicism do correlate with clinical outcomes, and the babies that are born from mosaic embryo transfers um, are, as far as the data tells us, indistinguishable so far from those from euploid embryo transfers. So those are the three big observations that are that are can be gleaned from the data so far, uh, but it is a, a developing field, and we have to get to the all these other questions. Absolutely, yes. Yeah, and you know, in the in the uh, paper, Manuel, I can't remember um, whether it was stated or whether it actually was something that was was there of the thousand transfers of known mosaics. How many were followed up with amniocentesis? Because that would be quite an interesting way of you know trying to gauge how the mosaicism persists. Absolutely. Yeah, we tried to gather as much information as we could from prenatal testing of those mosaic embryo transfers. It was obviously up to the patient to, you know, share that information with us. Um, so in ter- so overall, in terms of prenatal uh, testing, we got over 200 uh, pieces of information. For amniocentesis specifically, over a hundred, and um, what we saw from that those hundred plus amniocentesis uh, tests is that in none of them, in zero of them, was the mosaicism 
that was observed during PGTA, um, was it reflected during the amniocentesis? Um, so obviously the critic of mosaicism would say, well, that proves that mosaicism detected PGTA is, is just noise or whatever, but it's much more, it's much more, uh, let's dig a little deeper there. It, first of all, during PGTA, we take a trophectoderm biopsy and that, that is the precursor of this, of the placenta, of a, of a, of a compartment of the placenta. Second of all, there's this well-documented self-corrective mechanisms now for, uh, for mosaicism. Um, there's a lot of data coming out in that field from different model organisms, from, uh, but even uh, in, in human embryos where, um, and, and you know, by the way, the fact that aneuploid cells divide slower than euploid cells is a true statement throughout biology. And there's great work from Angelica Amon on that. That's, you know, it's, it's a, it's a basically a rule of thumb in biology that aneuploid cells divide slower in general than, than euploid cells. So it's, it shouldn't really come as no surprise that, that in a mosaic context, euploid cells persevere over time, except for example, if the aneuploid cells, the, the load of aneuploid cells is so large that the embryo simply collapses and cannot make it um, uh, through development. And that, that, that happens also in model organisms of the mouse. Great work from Magda Zenica gets lab there. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, um, again, embryos that are where we detect mosaicism with PGTA, they have lower implantation rates, but never do we see in our data set, in over 100 amniocentesis, do we see that mosaicism detected in the fetus, because amniocentesis obviously takes sam sample cells of, um, of fetal tissue. Uh, and that's encouraging, obviously. That means the fetus is unaffected by the, uh, by the mosaicism and, um, and therefore leads to babies that are seemingly perfectly healthy and um and that's what we should keep in mind when we talk about mosaic embryo transfers that the babies that are born so far seem completely indistinguishable from euploid embryos um, obviously the next frontier would be to sorry to um to do you know chromosomal analysis of different tissues in the babies born um you know, and, and but that that complicates things because, in fact, the three people that are in this conversation, we are undoubtedly mosaic ourselves. In, in if you looked at all our tissues, so then, I mean, there's there's ample evidence there that um, you know if you take the average liver of the person walking around, you see high levels of, you know, large percentage of aneuploid cells in the livers. Even in the brains, uh, on average, 4% of cells in the brains are aneuploid. So then you're saying, well, we, what you need to do is, are the levels of mosaicism different in babies that are born from, um, from mosaic embryo transfers compared to babies that are born from euploid embryo transfers? You have to look at different tissues. Are the levels different? Is the mosaicism consistent with the chromosomal that, the, that was mosaic at the, at the blastocyst stage is another question. So 
it does complicate that analysis. Um, but in other metrics that we see, you know, birth weight, length of gestation, gross abnormalities at birth, there's absolutely so far no difference between babies from mosaic embryo transfers and those from euploid embryo transfers. Let's not forget, too, as, as I alluded to earlier, uh, that um, that uh, in CVS, most mosaicism is not uh, identified later in amniocentesis. Now, that doesn't mean that the cells self-corrected. It might mean that, as Manuel just said, that they just had a growth disadvantage and became less and less a percentage of the total. That's a certainly reasonable explanation. Or depending on how many they, there are and where they are, and if they were in the inner cell mass, they may be confined to a single organ that doesn't have uh, any contribution to the amniotic fluid. And so who knows, but this looks like a, a problem and a solution in search of a problem. I don't know that it's that important if we think about the fact that this whole purpose of mosaicism is to improve the likelihood of getting pregnant uh, and not avoid disease in particular, then um, I think we, we, we should be pretty fine with it. Where The goal here is to help the IVF centers have a couple go home with a healthy baby. Uh, and we don't have to, other than the science of how we develop, which would be fun and interesting to do from a patient's perspective, I think it's not so critical. So we, we've had a great discussion about mosaicism and I think there's some fascinating areas that we're going to begin to look at over the next few years. Um, so I'm going to ask you a kind of last question, and it's a little bit of a crystal ball, guys. So having been in this field since 2006, 2007, 14, 14 years or so, um, where do you think we will be in 10 years' time with mosaicism? and our understanding of mosaicism and how we, how we look at it clinically? Well, um, I would say, you know, in a way, the cat is out the bag. We open Pandora's box, but rightly so uh, with mosaicism. You know, the days of binary, you know, normal, abnormal PGTA results are obsolete, in my opinion. It just simply ignores the fact that mosaicism exists, that mitotic errors do exist. So a simple you know, normal abnormal is just is not good enough anymore. We're, if we classify embryos that are should be classified as mosaic in the binary system, either they get lumped with the normals, and what that does is lower uh, success rates in the clinic because as I said, on average, mosaic embryos or those classified as mosaic have lower implantation rates, or they or they get classified with the abnormals, and then what you're doing is you're discarding embryos that are viable, and maybe even more problematic because then you know you're depriving the patient from a transfer of an embryo that could lead to a perfectly healthy baby. So I think those days are over. I think people will transition. The field will transition to mosaicism in the u.s i think we're seeing that being picked up very quickly in europe it's slower it's lagging but uh you know it's inevitable in a way 
you can't you can't go back because going back to like I said, um, normal abnormal is ignoring the whole the the, the fact of mitotic errors and mosaicism, uh, which which as we said in the beginning of the podcast is a there's overwhelming evidence that it exists in human embryos um, from visual uh, evidence to to you know chrom- chromosomal genetic um, uh, DNA quantitation evidence and so on. Um, I think like we discussed. We might get better at detecting mosaicism. Um, we might will get better at um, weeding out those samples where noise can be confounded with or conflated with intermediate copy number results. So we'll we'll get I think better at at that. But um, I think mosaicism is here to stay. Chromosomal mosaicism in PGTA is here to stay and. And in fact, I think we should embrace it, even though it complicates things. At the end of the day, it will, in, it will improve uh, clinical outcomes um, by, by, you know, realizing what mosaic embryos can, how they perform, what their clinical outcomes are, and so on and so forth. So my view is uh, right in the same line, Manuel, and I, I, I agree with everything you said. Medicine is... Um, not binary. Biology is rarely binary. And um, basically, we're dealing with um, probabilities, Uh, whether you're treating, no matter what you're treating a patient for, it's probabilities of a certain outcome. And we'll know over time, as our crystal ball clarifies a bit, we'll know more what what these mosaic embryos are teaching us, of course, but they're not gonna go away, they're there. And I think um, we'll probably move toward non-invasive analyses. And this will just be one more tool in the embryologist's toolbox for how we rank order the uh, embryos that a couple makes so that we can get to this elusive, but um, always the goal of identifying one embryo, having one transfer and resulting in one healthy baby. Thanks very much, Mark. I mean, I think from my point of view, I have great faith the technology will improve, will reduce the noise in samples, will be more convinced the mosaicism is real when we see it, will be able to detect whether aneuploidy is meiotic or post-meiotic mosaic. And Hopefully that will empower patients and clinicians to be able to make decisions to transfer with some more confidence those mosaic embryos. And from that sort of point of view, I hope that it will improve success rates, as Mark says, to give everybody the best chance. And I think mosaicism um, should be looked upon as an opportunity, an opportunity to deselect embryos that in very subtle ways won't uh, won't result in healthy live births and improve the selection of embryos that can to improve overall success rates. And that's my hope. And, you know, that's, I think, a fairly noble aim that the field should be working for. With that, I'd like to thank Mark and Manuel. Thank everybody who's tuned into this episode of Fertility Insights. Please share, comment, and make sure you tune into our next episode.